For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything he first, by transition of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning, either neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, the continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers. Through these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from their from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, that he, that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. May God bless the reading of his word. Now I invite Pastor Jeff to give the sermon. Morning, Crossbridge. Hope you all had a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. This morning, uh, we're going to be hearing from God's Word as we dive into chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews, as we continue the sermon series. It's something that the past few chapters have kind of been building towards, ever since the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, when we began reading about this doctrine, this understanding of Jesus as our great high priest. And our author, he wanted to go deeper right, into this understanding and the legitimacy of Christ's priesthood. And to do that, um, we're going to be looking at this guy Melchizedek, right, who's already been mentioned three times thus far as we've been progressing through this book. Now, I want to take space here because I, I think it's important for us to know heading into this passage uh, what this particular literary device, this hermeneutical device called ty typology. Some of you may know what that is, but typology, as one author puts it, it's, it's a way of interpreting scripture that is based on the fact that God works in recurring patterns throughout history. And so you, a past or event or a past person might kind of what we call prefigure or point forward to set the stage for a future person. Or event. Now, typology is different than allegory. Sometimes it's, it may appear very similarly, so we might confuse the two. But allegory, on the one hand, you know, we can think of allegory as in an extended metaphor, right? meaning that sometimes when we allegorize Scripture, we're, we're trying to find a deeper meaning there in the text that lies perhaps outside of the context of Scripture and outside of the narrative itself. 
So allegory, to give you an example, would perhaps be like saying that when David took those five smooth stones that he would use against Goliath, you know, to allegorize that scripture would mean to say that, oh, those five stones represent, let's say, faith, uh, trust, courage, obedience, and praise. Now, allegory can be dangerous at times when we're using it to interpret scripture because it tends to strip the text of its intended meaning. It tends to kind of ignore what the author intended as he wrote that passage. And if the passage can mean anything, then it means nothing. And then the passage can be misused for however the reader sees fit. Now, to again use that example, I'm sure David had did have faith. He did have trust and courage, obedience, and praise. But, you know, if I'm allegorizing scripture, then I could just as easily say that those five stones represent water, earth, fire, air, and energy. And together, David summons the power to become the avatar to defeat fire lord Ozai. I mean, Goliath. But, you know, or even better that those five stones could represent the space stone, the reality stone, the time stone, and so on and so forth to defeat Thanos. Now, I bring up allegory and typology because sometimes, we, again, I said we confuse the two, right? Uh, typology, on the other hand, it's going to be grounded in Scripture. It, it, in fact, it anticipates later events in Scripture, later people in, in Scripture. So this, its secondary meaning sometimes can really only be seen after the fact, as we're kind of going to be seeing today. Now, oftentimes, because the, when we think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're, they're two halves of one whole story. Right? We'll see some person in the Old Testament that points forward to some person in the New Testament. So Moses and King David, they're pretty good examples. right? They, they are, Moses is a prophet, King David is a king, he's the leader of Israel, and they're roles, who they are, it's ultimately fulfilled, even better, more fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they, what we call, we, we, they serve as a type of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called typology. And so the truth that we see presented in uh, someone like Moses or David in their roles is enlarged or, or heightened or clarified or even more fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus, then, we would call the antitype or the fulfillment of the type. So Jesus and Melchizedek walk into a bar. And the bartender says to Jesus, we don't serve your type here. So Melchizedek walks out. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Melchizedek, you know, I spent all this time setting it up so that it would, it would make sense, rather than starting out with a joke. Now, look, Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, right? He, he points to Jesus. He sets the stage for Jesus to come. And now that Jesus has come, we see that Jesus is better. Part of Advent is celebration of that waiting, the waiting that the Jewish people waited for their Messiah and also the waiting that we experience as we wait for Christ's return. Jesus fulfills this priesthood even better than Melchizedek. But our pastor this morning isn't quite ready to make that jump yet. In fact, our, our author is, is maybe trying to tackle a, a preceding question. Right? We ended last week with this verse, chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So over and over again, as we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, we've been hearing about this guy, Melchizedek. Now, before we say Jesus' priesthood is better because it's after the order of Melchizedek, we kind of have to ask, who is Melchizedek? And why is he so great? Because if he's not so great, then it kind of weakens the argument that Jesus is better. Right? So turn with me to, to chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. We're going to start there in our passage this morning. For this Melchizedek, and this is where our author is beginning to explain, right? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, this guy, Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. Melchizedek, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. That's what it means. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, and in that way, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so what we see here is that Melchizedek is this priest king who typifies Christ. He's a type of of Christ. He points to Christ. And so after already mentioning this guy's name a few times, we finally kind of get an introduction to him in this book. Melchizedek is king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. That is the, the same God that we worship, the same God that Abraham worships. Now, the author of Hebrews is actually kind of going all the way back to Genesis 14 to introduce Melchizedek. That's where he first appears in our biblical narrative. Abraham, uh, if you end up going to Genesis 14, verses 18 and following, Abraham had just come back from rescuing his nephew Lot from those five kings, and yet he comes to Melchizedek, this guy who is both priest and king. The text says that his name means king of righteousness, and his title as king of Salem means king of peace. Two very important things not just for Melchizedek, but right, particularly in the season of Advent, important because we see these things in Jesus. And, and so Melchizedek is starting to be presented for our author in Hebrews as this type of this messianic priest king whose kingdom is marked by righteousness and peace. That's Jesus. And this isn't just allegory, right? We're not just pulling uh, a rabbit out of nowhere, right? The author is developing this further in verse 3. He says that Melchizedek is a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. And so, he writes. He says that Melchizedek, strangely enough, is without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So, and so what seems to interest the author of this passage is not just what is said about Melchizedek, right? He's king of righteousness, king of, king of Salem, king of peace, but also what is not said. Right? In the Old Testament, when we get to this narrative, this story about Melchizedek, it doesn't mention who preceded or came after Melchizedek in the order of his priesthood doesn't mention his ancestors or his descendants. doesn't mention you know, that he was born 
or that he died or when he died. And so, yes, it's a form of an argument from silence, but it's still an argument that is rather significant because in the early chapters of Genesis, genealogies was really prominent. It's the sections that we all tend to skip over because it's all a bunch of names, right? But there are a lot of those lists of names if you flip to the beginning of the book of the, uh, beginning of the Bible, right? They listed the generations of Adam. They listed the generations of the sons of Noah and so on and so forth. And here we have this guy, Melchizedek. He's a priest of the God Most High. He's one of the only worshipers of the one true God in the beginning of Genesis that, where there's kind of no mention of ancestry or descendants. It's just this guy. He appears. Now, it doesn't mean that he just appeared out of nowhere, right? It doesn't mean that Melchizedek had no parents, that he had no family. It doesn't mean that he was an eternally existent being. But our author is using that, taking that, and making this typological point of comparison. The point is that the lack of these things that are being mentioned mark Melchizedek out as a type who under these things resembles the Son of God, sets the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ. So after this uh, brief, brief introduction to Melchizedek, we get really the main point here, verses 4 to 10. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, blessed the guy who had the promises from God. It is beyond dispute, then, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so, what is kind of being put forward here before we even get to this understanding that Jesus is better is that Melchizedek is better in the sense that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater. Verse 4, see how great this man was. This is what the author is trying to drive at in our passage this morning. It's Related to Jesus because, again, if Jesus' priesthood is better because Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, then that statement depends kind of on how great Melchizedek is. That statement is either weakened or strengthened depending on how one views Melchizedek. And we see how it's strengthened in two ways uh, in this latter half of our passage this morning. First, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Verses 4 to 7, right? I think this in itself is already a statement, right? Think about it. This is Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of the Hebrew people. 
You know, I had an old professor of mine in college who is really big uh, into the Hebraic roots of the Christian church. He wrote this book called Our Father Abraham and basically drilled it into us in every course that we had with him. It was required reading. It explored the rich, rich Hebrew heritage of the church. He would often say that when you say yes to Christ, you say yes to 4,000 years of spiritual history. You know, this guy, Abraham, is the guy to whom the covenant promises of God were given. The one who God said, I will, you know, bless you. I will give you descendants. I will, you know, give you land and make you a blessing to the nations. The guy in whom the Jewish people boasted to be descendants from. And now... Now, our author is making a point of showing how great Melchizedek is in comparison to Abraham. And he does it kind of by simply uh, implicitly raising this question. Who blessed who? Who paid the tithes to who? Or is it whom? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. He's citing, he cites this general principle of human relationships that I guess was pretty common, pretty widely accepted for him and for the the people that he's writing to. Verse 7, he says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in the same vein, he says, the person who receives tithes is superior to the person who pays them. And so the the Levites are mentioned. If you remember, the the Levites, they were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were in charge of uh, maintaining the tabernacle and later the temple. They were kind of set apart for this job, for this role. And it it was within the tribe of Levi that you had the Levitical priesthood, these, these priests. And all these Levites, particularly the priests, would receive a tithe from the rest of the tribes, their brethren their brethren, since they all descended from Abraham. But Melchizedek, he's a priest. He has no relation to any of them. Didn't descend from Abraham. And yet Abraham is coming to pay tithes to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is is greater than Abraham. Second thing is that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. By making this point, the passage is not just saying uh, one person is better than another, but he's putting forward that this priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of the Levites. And we're going to kind of see more and more of this uh, as the chapter unfolds and, you know, we get on to later chapters. But this priesthood is better. It's the, the same priesthood that, that he's tying Jesus' priesthood to. The Jewish people, they had a really strong concept of family solidarity. So much so that for them, it, it makes sense for the author to say that Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek was at the same time Levi paying tithes to him. So again, this, this morning, we, we hit these first 10 verses. They're important. It, if we're going to, again, say that Jesus is better, this has been an ongoing theme 
for us as we've been working our way through Hebrews. He's a better redeemer. That was part one. He brings a better redemption. We, we spoke about that in our litany, right? We're going to say that his Jesus is better, his priesthood is better, and we say that his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, then it begs the question, what's so great about Melchizedek? Or to put it another way, one, one commentator said this, if, if a type of Christ, that is Melchizedek, is greater than he who has the promises, Abraham, how much more so is Christ himself? So this morning we rest in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because he is better, because his priesthood is better, his covenant is better, his promises are better, and they are sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we give thanks to you. Again, because you are so very faithful. We give thanks to you for this season of Advent as we come before you with expectant waiting, joyful celebration, hopeful anticipation, Lord, of Christ's return. God, help us during this time to continue to look towards you and and to believe in our own hearts and in our lives that you are better, that you are greater. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.